You're listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Alamo Pictures, a production company specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Alamo Pictures to be the first to hear about new productions, festivals we're attending, and how to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk. And now, enjoy Factual America with our host, Matthew Sherwood. Welcome to Factual America, a podcast that explores the themes that make America unique through the lens of documentary filmmaking. I'm your host, Matthew Sherwood, and every two weeks it is my pleasure to interview documentary filmmakers and subject matter experts. And we're coming to you from Spiritland Studios here in uh, King's Cross, London, England. And today's topic is factory farming. Now, this is not the first time we've uh, discussed this, uh, but we're going to sort of narrow in on an aspect of factory farming and looking at the growing global appetite for meat and what this means for the humane treatment of animals and what it also means for environment and health. Uh, And our guest today is Phil Brook. Phil is a research and education manager at Compassion in World Farming. So welcome to Factual America. Good good to be here. Yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and and more specifically, what does Compassion in World Farming do? So Compassion in World Farming, we're an animal welfare environment group. Our main purpose is to try and get rid of factory farming, to have, if we could keep animals, to make sure they're kept in better conditions to encourage people to eat less but better meat so that we don't need so much land to produce food for people so there's more land left for nature. Okay, very good. Um, Now, what we usually do is uh, we ask our guests to choose a film but uh, that was done for you and me both. Made it uh, easy, we, we didn't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we didn't really have a choice. And and right. And, and I'm glad we didn't because uh, where Phil and I have met uh, previously is the uh, Global Health Film Festival. Now, Global Health, we've uh, it was a great film festival that we attended back in December. Uh, we've already had uh, at least one podcast that uh, from that uh, interview with the uh, director and producer of Soilism, which is a film that I would say dovetails really nicely with with this one. I don't know if you've had a chance to see it yet, uh, uh, Phil. But uh, while we were there, we saw this film, Eating Animals. Um, It's 2018. Uh, The director is Christopher Quinn. Uh, You might know him mainly for uh, his film, God Grew Tired of Us, which came out in 2006. Uh, It's a grand jury prize, an audience award at Sundance, uh, best documentary at Deauville. It's narrated by Natalie Portman. And based on the best-selling book by Jonathan Safran Foer from 2009. Now, I want to give a shout-out at this point, uh, and then we'll quickly get to Phil and let him do the talking. Um, a shout-out to Chris Quinn and Simone Friedman of the EGF Philanthropies. Um, uh, Chris, obviously the director, and, and Simone, who's um, who works for her family's uh, philanthropic organization in supporting the they're supporting the impact campaign for eating animals, and generally they promote. Uh, uh, sustainable food causes. Now, I just wanted to say thank you so much. They were so generous with their time at the at the film festival, uh, chatting with uh, with me and uh, our producer um, uh, Emmett Glenn, and also a big shout out to Jerry McHugh at uh, the Global Health Film Festival, who uh, who very nicely made them made them accessible to us. And so uh, we are forever indebted uh, to you as as well. So, eating animals. Phil, what's Eating Animals about? So it's about factory farming. It's about the history of factory farming, how it came about. 
It's about the impact it has on the welfare of animals, the uh, livelihoods of farmers who get stuck into debt. It's about the pollution caused by it going into the rivers and killing all the fish. It's about its effect on the spread of disease, the requirement for antibiotics which are used, and then therefore for the antibiotic resistance that means our drugs won't work. So it's all the impact of factory farming. Now, uh, and it, before we get more into the discussion of factory farming, I just say it's a, it's a, it's a uh, it's a lovely film. Mm. I, I think it's a it's a very powerful film. It's it's had a, certainly an impact on my my life and my family's life already. Um, and I also want to thank Phil because when we're discussing what clips to show, uh, my my predilection is to go for the the really beautiful shots that Chris has done of uh, of the prairies of the United States and everything. And Phil's narrowing in on the well the, the the footage that shows us the horrific conditions and talks a lot about the 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 reality and what's going on with factory farming. Um, but before looking at a clip, I mean maybe just the basics because. Um, Believe it or not, I think there probably some of our listeners may not even really know what factory farming is. So factory farming is a paradigm, makes it rather difficult to describe in a few words, but you know what it is when you see it. So it tends to be very large scale, so lots of animals are kept. It tends to be confinement agriculture, so the animals are commonly in cages or overcrowded in sheds or have been bred to grow incredibly fast and productive. Like their cogs in a machine rather than sentient animals that matter to themselves. And so, um, perhaps you remember Charlie Chaplin's um, f- film from the 30s, where he showed workers on a production line, and they were their interests were subordinated to the needs of the factory. And the same happened starting about the same time to animals, that they became simply objects of production rather than creatures that mattered in themselves. And that's the paradigm. And so many of the characters, and there's just an amazing cast of characters in this this film, and that's what all great documentaries have, is is good characters. And in some ways, you know, factory farming almost becomes, is is the backdrop. But uh, they all, I think the number of terms, times the term widget is used, Mm. you know. And and I think this takes us. This is a good point to get to that clip, the first clip we have, which uh, we've got Natalie Portman, and uh, along with Chris uh, Quinn's uh, imagery, talking about uh, basically how we got here. So uh, let's let's have a look at that clip now. You come across these masterpieces: steel, plastic, rotating wheels arms repeating the same motion all brought together in the most ingenious ways to produce more and more is this efficiency you once farmed independently with sweat and labor love and tedium and it was satisfying now you go into debt Turn on the machines, take orders from central command. But you are efficient. That's why you do it. You and your machines are feeding the world. You are giving people what they want. You want this world. You want efficiency. You don't want to put anyone out of business. 
Nobody ever got the idea, wouldn't it be really cool if we raised millions of animals under really hideous conditions and gave them short, miserable, and painful lives? By the way, we would also pollute our waterways uh, and deplete our topsoils. Wouldn't that really be a great way of doing business? There was never sort of some evil genius whose idea was to create a world that was like that. It's, it's, a, it's a place that we got to step by step. And we're going, how did we get here? The United Nations released a report. It was over 400 pages. It's called Livestock's Long Shadow. And in this report, they said, whatever environmental issue you're looking at, water pollution, air pollution, climate change, raising animals for food, are one of the top two or three contributors. It causes somewhere between 14% and more than half of all climate change. And so now we're at this point where it's a question of how do we go somewhere else? So, Phil, I think that's one of, I mean, it was really hard to settle on two or three clips to show because I think the whole film, um, I think scene after scene is, is, all, is all very powerful. But um, I think that's a very good clip to show us, I mean, sort of looking back how we got here. Um, and I have some questions. I mean, is this a uniquely American phenomenon? No, I mean, factory farming has spread across the world. I mean, in Britain, it took off immediately after the Second World War, when the object was to to, to feed people as much uh, animal protein as possible at a time when they thought that's what was good for people. And uh, hens got put into cages, chickens got bred to grow a bit faster and and faster still and so forth. Sows, female pigs got put into sow stalls and farrowing crates. And it was a gradual process. So when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, most of our eggs by then were produced in battery cages. Um, globally, if you look at chickens, the fast-growing chicken strains are used throughout the world. So you'll have that kind of intensive farming everywhere. Oh, my goodness. And so, as you say, it's not just the U.S., it's not just the U.K., it's Europe. It's made in roads everywhere. Yeah, especially with um, pigs and chickens, yeah. You know, we see, uh, I think even in that clip, or there are other clips we'll see, and we'll we'll see examples of how um, this, this form of farming is inherently uh, cruel, and inhumane to uh, to animals. Um, I mean, but weren't well, let's maybe 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 I can play a little devil's advocate. I mean, weren't not all farmers were just humane with their animals before factory farming kicked in? I mean, is this part of the na- nature of farming animals, or is this something? Are we seeing something different with factory farming that you didn't see before? I mean, what's become clear with factory farming is that it isn't possible to keep the animals well. So however conscientious the workmen, however efficient they are, the animals don't get a good life. In fact, if they look after them better, they end up being able to keep them more crowded, which isn't in the animals' interests at all. Um, Whereas if you've got a more traditional farm or a modern free-range farm, there is the opportunity for the animals to have a good life. Mm. They still have to be managed well by stock people who care about them, for the potential for good welfare in those systems to happen. But this this is one of our key ideas, is welfare potential. We need systems that have the opportunity to be good. Mm. But we mustn't kid ourselves. Yes, you can always run a, a good farm badly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I think this gets to a point where you... Uh, what is uh, Compassion World Farming and others? What are, you try- what are you trying to do about, as you said, your stated aim is to end factory farming? So... Um, uh, what are the appropriate methods of raising awareness and bringing about this this change? 
So obviously we go to the public, we provide educational materials, we go to journalists, we, we go undercover, we show the results of uh, what's happening in factory farming. And we use that also uh, to talk to politicians, uh, to run campaigns, to get forms of factory farming banned. So if you take the British example, yeah. um, back in the 80s, we got the veal crate banned. That's okay. uh, a, a cage in which small calves, male calf, dairy calves were kept, in which they couldn't turn round and they were in the dark and they were kept on an iron, a low iron diet to keep them anemic so their flesh was white appalling system which uh, was banned in Britain um, from 1990. Um, we then got the sow stall bans in the in the states I think you call that the gestation crate um, where the pregnant sow is kept permanently in a cage she can't turn round in until she gives birth when she goes into another one called a farrowing crate. Well we we have farrowing crates but we got rid of the sow stall in Britain in 1999. Okay. Then the campaigns went more European, and in 99 we got a ban announced on the battery cage throughout the EU, which came into play from 2012. We got the Southall restricted, we got the veal crate banned uh, throughout Europe. So there's a range of results we had through legislation. Um, other ways we, we, we try and work, and this has been very successfully shown in the States by animal protection groups, uh, over there, um, which is to go to the, the supermarkets, to go to the food businesses and persuade them. They can do things quicker. Mm. They don't have to wait for legislation and they care about what their public thinks about their record. And very commonly, if they have better um, treatment of animals, it doesn't make a huge difference to the cost of the food they're producing. So we've, you've got in the States the top 25 retailers who are now going to go cage-free by 25. Mm. In the UK, the top 10 are going to go cage-free by 2025. And you find the same in similar in many supermarkets across Europe, mm. Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, that the, these are changes made by food businesses. In the Netherlands, their supermarkets don't only sell slow-grain chickens now, which means they use a third of the antibiotics they used to use. Mm. So these are the kinds of way that we and other animal welfare groups have managed to get change and continue to try to move for change to get animals treated better and a more environmentally friendly form of farming. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. As someone who now, I've lived in the UK for a while now, um, I remember, I forget exactly what the year was, but all of a sudden the whole thing about... Uh, caged hens and, and eggs hit, hit, hit the press quite big. And you can't even go into the most discount. I mean, it's hard to find caged hen, you know, eggs laid by caged hens. Almost all of them now are, are, are free range. I, I mean, in, in, in British supermarkets, yeah. that's true. Yeah. You had to look at the bottom shelf of some of them to find the cheap yeah. caged eggs in, yeah. in some of the supermarkets, and yeah. they're phasing them out. Yeah. Now, that, that, that's right. Uh, across Europe, there are a lot of barn, barn eggs, but again, half the eggs in Europe are pro it's getting towards half are now cage-free. And, and in, in the UK, it would be two-thirds of our hens would by now be cage-free. Mm. And I think, as you said, because uh, we talked, pre you know, at the festival, well, and 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 before going on to this uh, this recording, is that, uh, and I've now been keeping an eye out for. Now, this is very UK specific, but when I go to the supermarket, places I didn't think I'd be able to find stuff where it was uh, free range or outdoor bred pork, or I think in the states what we call grass fed beef, but you know, 
sometimes you have to read the fine print, yes. uh, depending, but uh, even your discount uh, retail supermarkets all the way to your uh, more higher end are uh, offering um, alternatives. And um, uh, here in the UK, you've got the RSPCA who's putting its stamp of approval and things. So uh, I've noticed the eggs we're getting now are all have an RSPCA stamp on them. And, um, and a lot of the uh, the meats that my family are, are, are consuming have, have that stamp as well. So um, I think we're going to talk a little bit more about this as we uh, later in the podcast as we talk about how quickly this is changing. Is it changing fast enough? And what are the solutions for, for, the, for the issues? Because as we, as we discussed in another podcast, actually with the directors of uh, this film, this other film that we looked at uh, called Soilism, is that, uh, and they had some similar statistics, you know, world population is going to be, by the 2050, is going to be about 9 billion, I think. Um, That's the projection. Yeah, and I think when I was a boy, roughly where he, the world was consuming about uh, 7 billion animals a year, it's now up to 50 billion, and they're projecting in current rates it's going to get up to 100 billion animals a year that are going to be consumed in on the globe. So, I, it's about, it's right? about 75 billion. Is it now 75? Today, yeah. And probably 83, if you count hens and cows, 83 used for food each year. Yeah. And that doesn't include probably 100 billion fish farm yeah. fish and about a thousand billion wild fish so yeah. there's a lot of animals so i think that would be a good time to look at this next clip uh it's one that uh well it's hard to say near and dear but i think uh, uh it's, it speaks a lot to phil uh, in the in terms of um uh compassion world farming's involvement with this farmer named uh, uh craig watts in uh, north carolina he was a poultry farmer and uh this says a lot it says there's uh I'm, don't need to say. I, I don't think we need to be uh, shy about this. But you know, a lot of the images that you see, if those who are watching and not listening, uh, you know, there's some there's some shocking stuff you're going to see in this film. But um, you helped. Uh, we'll talk about this on. Uh, there's a clip, and then there's going to be a. Then we'll go to a break, and then after the break, uh, Phil and I can uh, talk more about it. But uh, this is this uh, poultry farmer who uh, whistleblow was a whistleblower, and sort of the uh, the effects that had. Um, both in terms of uh, the public awareness and also in terms of Craig's own life. So let's watch that clip now. It just builds over 20-some years. I mean, you just get to a point where, I mean, everybody's got that point. And I just hit mine watching that uh, Purdue commercial. My dad always uh, taught us one line, that is do the right thing. And we're doing the right thing. And we're transparent. He wants the public to believe that that's a normal farm. I might not be a lot of things, but I'm not a liar. My granddaddy drilled that into me very good. He always said, you know, tell the truth, no matter how bad it hurts. I seen birds with four legs, no eyes, bacteria-laden intestines. You'll smell that walking in the door. That can be horrendous. And you'll see heart attacks. They call them flip-overs. We call it water belly. 
this will get purple and it's just full of fluids. It's an absolute breakdown of the heart, lungs and whatnot. I'm not a vet, but that's not normal. Rubber. The legs folded completely in half. I, I really don't know what happens. It's just so soft that it doesn't snap. You run into a lot of these that can't get up. You can hear respiratory in this one really bad. Can you hear it? This is your premium prime time, no antibiotic ever, cage-free, humanely raised, blah, 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 whatever else is on that label. You know, I, I, I mean, I took pictures. I cut the birds open, told them what it was, sent it. Nobody came. If you want the egg to hatch, you have to leave it in there with the chicken. If Craig had come to me first and said, I want to be a whistleblower. I want to tell the truth about what's happening on these farms. I would not have said, get a camera and start videotaping because the risk would have been too high. We've been around for 37 years and uh, represented very high profile whistleblowers and we know what happens. You're probably just gonna get your ass handed to you by the corporation. It's not just like you can come up to these giants and throw stones and say bad things about them and expect not to have some sort of retaliation. There's a brand that's at stake and they definitely want to fight for that. We were going through the government route and what we found out was if you step in that congressman's office, time you leave, the chicken counselor knows that you were just there. That's just the way it is. And I found out, okay, the hot buttons video. I'm Craig Watts. I'm a contract poultry producer with Purdue Farms. Leia released a video in the New York Times, picked it up, and then they got it on the Reddit board, and, and it's just like, damn it. Forbes and Washington Post and front page of Reddit and New York Times, Wired. It really upset people. The next thing you need is half a million views and 24 hours, and I was like, oh, shoot, I didn't expect that. They dispatched a team of welfare experts to my farm, company people. Six visits in 10 days, if I remember right. How are you doing today? I'm doing a lot of the other day. They were telling me my welfare standards on my farm weren't up to their standards. How can I be so bad to finish first in your tournament system? The whole thing was to get me to the breaking point. You're listening to Factual America. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Alamo Pictures to keep up to date with new releases and upcoming shows. Check out the show notes to learn more about the program, our guests, and the team behind the production. And now, back to Factual America. Welcome back to Factual America. So we've just uh, you've just had a break, listeners, but before that we saw a clip um, about this uh, video that uh, Compassion World Farming posted that went viral. So can you tell us a little something about uh, what your colleagues in the States were doing and, and how this all happened and, and sort of the, the impact that had? So I, I don't get have the full story, but I know Leah Garces, who was yeah. uh, our CEO at the time, met Craig Watts, 
and to cut a long story short, gave him a video camera to mm. film what was going on in his sheds. Um, I, I remember at the time, because in the research department, we were given the clips to look at and to work out what was going on and why the, what the problems were. And they're the classic problems of chickens who have grown too fast for their bodies to keep up, the circulatory and respiratory systems not keeping up, so they become completely exhausted, shattered, full of liquid, all of the problems of um, degenerative heart disease, chronic heart failure and so forth, um, and problems which have been getting worse and worse as they have bred chickens to grow faster. Mm -hmm. and as we heard earlier, this wasn't intentional, mm -hmm. but if you grow an animal to grow faster and faster, other things give. Their joints don't keep up, so they end up lame. Their hearts don't keep up, so they end up with heart failure, um, they end up exhausted, They're, they end up less able to cope with disease. Um, all of these are side effects of trying to produce a cheap, cheaper chicken uh, and the chickens are suffering as a result, the farmers are suffering because they're actually very much more difficult to manage as you saw. And we looked at this, we, we checked it, the, the uh, US team produced a script, we checked it and it went out and it went viral. and suddenly people started caring about these things and it's mm. helped to drive a move by the chicken producers to perhaps come closer to us and our better chicken initiative to suggest we should be producing slower growing chickens that can keep healthy we should be giving a bit more space we should be allowing them to have a life mm. i mean i think um uh for those of you who couldn't see the you listen to the clip and there's it's 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 damning enough in terms of the audio that you'll you've heard but you know Craig at one point's bending a leg it's like rubber you know yeah. this chicken i mean these are uh probably now my new favorite uh character in a documentary of all time it's right up there with Paul Brennan and salesman but is Frank Reese um the turkey whisperer that we have and we'll have another clip that he's in but uh, i think he, doesn't he say he's a he's basically a student of sort of the history of poultry and what used to happen and what happens now and what's been lost but doesn't he give us a, you know if 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 a uh, if a human baby, or maybe it's in one of the uh, the narration pieces, if a human baby grew at the same rate as one of these chickens, they'd be like at two months old, they'd be 600 pounds or something like that, isn't it? Yes, absolutely massive yeah. rate yeah. of growth, yeah. and that's right. And, and you've, you, th there are lots of great stories in this film. One of the nice things about it is they show positive sides as well. Mm. So we have Frank with his turkeys flying up into the trees and his <laughs> free-range chickens, uh, and we have uh, the Nyman Ranch people with yep. their free-range pigs and their their cows, yeah. showing that there are examples based on looking after animals properly where you can produce stuff for market, that for the people wanting to eat their less but better meat, that which is sustainable, is one of the answers. Mm -hmm. And again, it makes the, uh, the film shows a range. One of the things I like most about the film is that it doesn't tell you what to uh, believe. Uh, and uh, it's interesting you raise that point because uh, I, I raised that point with the director when you were, you know, not to name drop, but uh, Chris yeah. Quinn at the, uh, at, uh, after the after the screening, and he said the exact same thing. He didn't see a need to. He thought that the... Uh, just letting the cameras roll, they they just said enough, you know. And it's really effective. So he has um, Bruce Friedrich, the vegan uh, campaigner, on it. Mm -hmm. He has the people who are producing Beyond Meat yeah. um, and the Just Eggs 
mm-hmm. um, alternatives, and he has the high welfare farmers. Mm. And you can choose at the end of that, are you going to the better welfare meat route or are you going to eat less or even go vegetarian or vegan? Yeah. But it doesn't tell you what to do. You, it leaves you to experience the stories, to see what it's like, to see what the effect is on the environment and to make your own choices about what you do better. Yeah, I think that's a good point, because one of the... Uh, a, yeah, another clip, and just highly recommend seeing this 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 film, but in one clip that actually comes right after this one, for those who go and now watch it, uh, they're still in uh, eastern North Carolina, and one of the, uh, the, the campaigners who's been looking at it from the environmental standpoint, and uh, there's this guy who got into the game because he used to go fishing, and he's finding his fish were starting to have scales on them and he was and his family was starting to develop these scales and he said the the thing is i think you're thinking sores sores yes yes yes. well uh, sores with scales on them or something (laughs) but i don't mean fish scales yes Uh, good point but i think as he keeps saying we can see everything and uh there's uh you know all these pink lagoons which is where all the excrement goes all over eastern north carolina uh and i lived in north carolina when all this was starting to take off um but uh, he said the one thing we can't see is what's going on on the inside. And I think what this film does as best as it can, and I guess probably what your campaigns are about as well, is trying to get footage from the inside so people can – you don't even have to say anything. This is the conditions. Uh, and so make your own decision about about um, the choices you make. I mean that gets, gets back to Craig. Um, I have some affinity for Craig. I think he might even be a distant relative. He only lives a, f- a few miles from where uh, the Sherwoods hail from on the other side of the North Carolina-South Carolina border. Uh, I've been to Fairmont and uh, that area. Um, um, this is a guy who's winning. I mean, we we don't want to – we could go into a discussion about the whole tournament system that you have in poultry farming in, in the United States. But they show his hats, and one's uh, Purdue Farms, Dillon, South Carolina. So that's where the Sherwoods of my Sherwoods branch is from. Um, and I remember when that Purdue factory went in. But um, this guy was winning tournaments. I mean, he was he was one of their, at least in a few years there, he was one of their best producers. And he is still racking up. I mean, he's, he says, what, he's got $500,000 in, in debt or something like that. So uh, as he said, it's not indentured servitude because uh, indentured servants don't have $500,000 in debt hanging around their neck. You know, so it's uh, it's definitely much if 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 the if the if the poultry and the meat is are widgets, these farmers are widgets. Yeah, as well. the, the 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 farmers aren't getting a good deal out of this at all. Yeah. And one of the effects of factory farming, when you produce cheap meat, less money is going to rural communities. Yeah. We had the opposite thing happening in Britain, where some of the big um, uh, integrated poultry mm. producers, the egg producers. It told me, well, we're moving now towards free-range eggs. We closed down a battery farm with a quarter of a million hens in it. We signed contracts with 20 small farmers to keep 12,000 free-range hens. Mm. Um, And the value of the egg market has gone up hugely. Mm. It's been a benefit to the industry, strangely a benefit for the retailers as well because Mm. they take a a margin of a higher-value product. Mm. It means that people are paying the proper price Mm. of producing their food in, instead, of, instead of rock bottom. Okay. And the rock, the rock bottom means that there's a price for the farmer, there's a price for the environment, there's a price for the animals that's not factored in. That cheap, This cheap food is very expensive for everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. And the thought that you 
get into all of this debt and you have to go on working harder and harder for less and less money and you're never going to get out of that. Mm. That's again. I'm sure nobody planned it that way, yeah, yeah. but it's it's very rough on the farmers as well as the animals. Yeah. So does compassionate world farming? Do you do anything to support Craig? Because he's now, as we find out, he's out of farming, or well, at least out of poultry farming. Is there? Do 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 you know if there's anything that's done to help support some of these farmers that are in whistleblowers like this? Yes. I, I mean, I mean, the the answer to my, that question is I, I I don't know. I know he's looking into growing legumes and mm. stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but I, I would have to ask my colleagues yeah. the, the, yeah. whether whether that relationship continues. But yeah, because what I was going to get to is because it right together because the clip before that one is another whistleblower. Yes. Um, so a, uh, a veterinarian uh, scientist named Jim Keane, uh, professor of veterinary epidemiology, and he works for the USDA. You, you, that's the United States Department of Agriculture, uh, and he works at the uh, Meat Animal Research Center, or DID, and he was a whistleblower. Now, uh, we're not going to show the clip, and it's not because of exactly what it shows. We just don't have the time, to be honest, but I highly recommend uh, looking at this. But that's when we... When we saw you at the Global Health Film Festival, you said that was like, because I think you've seen all kinds of stuff in yeah. terms of footage and things like that. But that was one that really hit you. It, got, it, it came you. through. The, the, the chair at that time said, I, I noticed you blenched at this point. Uh, and the answer is a cruelty I hadn't come across. But basically, they had, the, they, at the testing facility, they wanted to know which, which were the most... Well, they were testing the libido of their bulls. Most virile. At, well, the yeah. most virile. And to find out how, 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 what the libido of a bull is, you, they were tying up a heifer, a, a young cow, mm. and seeing how many times he mounted her. And by this stage, they had half a dozen bulls in with her, and she simply collapsed under the weight. Her Achilles tendons were pulled. And that moment, I thought, the excruciating agony that that animal went through... But there's, it's not just the immense cruelty of it. It's the lack of respect for the animal. I and mean, how can it be right yeah. to treat an animal like that? Yeah. So essentially this heifer got raped to death, yes. basically. And here's Jim, and he's, he's just seen too much, and he whistleblows. And so this film, as much as it is about factory farming, it's also about whistleblowers and people trying to do the right thing and then the resistance they face. I mean, I think it even came out in the uh, the with the clip we just saw with Craig, uh, someone who would advise people <laughs> what to do and not do when you whistleblow. But this uh, this this has changed his life. I mean, his, uh, he's didn't lose his job, but he had to move away. His marriage has failed. I mean, it's uh, it's uh, which says a lot about the power of these uh, this entrenched lobby that is um, the, the producers uh, and the owners of, of this factory farm system. Yes, and I, and I mean, the whist whistleblowers have to be brave yeah. and they have to know they're taking risks. Yeah. Uh, there are people who support them and they're shown in the film uh, who, who advise them legally and so forth. Um, it takes a great deal of courage to do that and people have to do that with knowing what the situation is. And we as a society need to respect whistleblowers because we need them mm. i think this takes us to um i mean we've been talking a lot about animal welfare and i think you know and rightfully so and that's certainly what he, your fo your focus is but i think even if that isn't enough we know that there are threats in failing to act 
in terms of where this could all be headed. And um, I think that takes us uh, in this in this winter of coronavirus. And as uh, someone who lives where they had the first couple of confirmed cases in the UK, um, I think this is um, it's, this is a good clip to know to look at if you, if you don't mind, Phil. Um, where we uh, I had to do it, so I wanted to get Frank Reese in one of the clips. So we start off with some Frank Reese discusses this, but he also talks about what's happened with the kind of chickens they're breeding and the and the uh, the um, antibiotics and then we look at how this could look turn into a could create a global pandemic so let's uh, watch that clip now done everything to bring those birds into existence. I have their parents, their grandparents. I've gathered the eggs. I set the eggs. I wash the eggs. I spend hours and days taking care of them as babies and months being with them in the pasture. Some of the lines I have here, this truly is the last of them on earth. I find my faith in doing what I do and the connection with the earth and with these animals a very religious experience. Holiness doesn't mean you do great things, it means you do small things with great love. When I was a kid, there was a true love of the aesthetics. I would go and I would visit the farmers that I knew when you would look out over the field and you would see a flock of bard rocks or you would see a flock of bourbon red turkeys, they would truly love the beauty of what they saw, of what they were doing. That is gone today in farming. There's no way you can love an animal that has been genetically engineered to die in six weeks. I've come to learn why annually billions of birds are fed antibiotics. It's not that they're initially sick. It's so they can stand the filthy, overcrowded conditions they're raised in. It's because their bodies have been modified to grow four times more quickly than they would naturally, leading to diseases that make drugs essential. Nearly 80% of all antibiotics produced by the pharmaceutical industry are used for factory farm animals. This constant flow of antibiotics is a vital artery of industrial farming, as essential as air or water to the factory farm system. And it has led to the birth of so-called superbugs. These bugs are already mutating to bypass the antibiotics designed to kill them. Tens of thousands of Americans now die annually from ailments once easily treated. The CAFO system, it's like a petri dish for resistant bacteria and flu viruses as well. It's a system that is just ripe for creating disease. Birds and waterfowl in particular are a melting pot for all these viruses. They come together, they mix and match. You can get H5N1, H1N7. What's changing things now is that the industrialized poultry industry is spreading across the world. So now we routinely raise birds in flocks of several million on a single site in close proximity. 
and it's very easy to get a build-up of pathogens that will go through the entire house in a matter of hours. The risk then comes that these viruses jump into humans. And that's when you get a human pandemic, and that's when we get worried about the likes of Spanish flu back in 1918. The 1918 pandemic was unlike most influenzas that attack the weak. This one preyed on the young and healthy. The virus spread around the world, traveling on boats that moved across the oceans. Estimates suggest that one third of the world fell ill. 25 million died in a 25 week period. By now, the deadly strain of influenza had not disappeared from the planet, even though it had largely disappeared from our minds. Where is the virus now? Is it en route on the wings of a bird? Imagine 2,500 cesspools like that cooking in the hot summer sun in eastern North Carolina. And, and if you don't expect something bad to come out of that, well, I got a bridge to sell you. This is now some of the filthiest blood water ever seen in this country. In the mix, millions of gallons of concentrated hog Worried about disease, state officials are shipping in portable incinerators. Sooner or later, it might be swine flu, it might be avian flu. Something bad's going to happen in America. Now, I'm not a scientist, but it takes an idiot not to realize that that's going to happen. That may be a rendering truck. We are creating the perfect storm. I mean, it's it's not if, it's when there's going to be another really dangerous flu virus. Okay, I think that's a, yet another uh, very powerful clip, and there's a lot there. Uh, but um, I think maybe first of all, start with, um, you know, there's talk about a global pandemic, but even before we get that, what, what we could cause that, there's, there's this whole issue about the need for massive amounts of antibiotics to even make this whole factory farming system viable. Um, so, uh, so Phil, what would you, I think you wanted to say something about yeah, that. Yes, it, it's, a, it's a key issue that the use of antibiotics has been at a very high level. There have been major efforts more recently to reduce them with great difficulty because these very fast-growing chickens are very given to, to diarrhea and other bacterial diseases mm. um, which make them ill. And in the, a, a simple experiment's been carried out in the Netherlands. Um, they had this big campaign, the Plofkip campaign, that resulted in all the supermarkets going for slow-grain chickens. So the 40% of the chickens that the, the Dutch now grow for their own market are slow-growing. Some of them have more space as well. The 60% that they're exporting to countries like mine, Britain, <laughs> are fast-growing. And... They've reduced antibiotic use in all of them, but one in three of the fast-growing chickens needs antibiotics. One in ten of the slow-growing ones need antibiotics. And there's tantalizing evidence that w those that are grown to with extra space and grow even more slowly is down to one in 20. Mm. So a really key effect of moving towards a slow-growing chicken is less need to use antibiotics to keep them well. Mm. And it's one of those clear signs. They, they're 
less prone to get um, foodborne diseases like Campylobacter. Again, because they're more resistant, mm. because they're more robust, because they're healthier. So that's one of the health aspects of factory farming, is it has depended on antibiotics. Mm. Now, we, the impact of the way we treat our animals is also leading to a lot of these pandemics. Now, they're not all caused by factory farming, mm. but they tend to be caused by bad practice. So if we think of the coronavirus or SARS, which have recently come from China, these are the result of, of wild animal markets where they've got very, very stressed animals caught in the wild being sold live for food. And next to them, they have chickens and people in close proximity. And it looks like both of these highly deadly viruses have slipped from the wild animals um, into birds and so. We all, there was also a, a big bad case of Spanish flu at the end of the First World War that the film also goes on to talk about, where 50 million people, I believe, died, more than were killed in the First World War, at the end of the First World War, which a result of a virus that had spread between chickens and pigs and people. And the numbers of animals that we keep, and increasingly the more you have in one big farm, the more you've got a, the opportunity for new viruses to, to mutate and occasionally one of them may prove to be a deadly one. So the more animals we keep, the worse we keep them, the more at risk we are of more of these diseases. And if you ever want to go out, why should we keep fewer animals for me and try and eat a more plant-based diet it's not just because we're primates and that's what primates eat it's not just because we want to look after the animals better it's not just because we want to use less land for agriculture so we have some more na for nature but it's also that we want we can want to reduce the risk of new viruses mutating spreading causing the kinds of problems that we're seeing at the moment mm. i think this gets to uh, a very good point where we can maybe discuss about what are the realistic solutions because mm. it's easy enough for uh, you and I. I mean, I, we're we're on the same page, I think, on this one. I mean, uh, I know uh, I'm I'm still a meat eater. You've chosen not to be, but that's uh, you know I think we're we're in agreement in terms yeah, of, uh, of the way of, yeah. of this sort of thing. Um, but what are the realistic solutions? Because we've got we've got this global de demographic, so we've already discussed it. The population is going to get up to by 2050 is going to be about nine billion people in the world. Uh, we've got this booming global demand for food, and therefore, and increasingly, it's increasing more rapidly even for, for meat because of changing uh, lifestyles and tastes in places like China and India. Uh, we have the entrenched interests that are going to fight this as best they can in terms of, uh, of um, I think as someone in this film referred to it, is uh, it's very big, but big things can fall apart sometimes more easily than small things and uh, you know there there is this threat to the future of, of could eventually uh, could be eventually a threat to the future of factory farming and then uh, you know i've just i was talking about it last night with uh, we were out to eat um so i've gone i'm being a lot more i, I must say uh, uh, astute about the things i buy and i'm finding uh, you know my grocery bill has definitely gone up now you could argue you're None of us were ever meant to spend only three pound fifty or five dollars for a chicken, <laughs> but uh, um, but the reality is, if you want to stick to that sort of uh, um, uh, more humane 
uh, diet of instalit uh, animals, it is it is more expensive, and a lot of people don't have that. You know, an extra few extra fifty bucks uh, or pounds a week is 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 a decent amount in terms of family budget. So, what what do you think are the um, uh, what are the steps that need to be taken in keeping in mind the dem- what the demographics are showing and the, the reality is we need to feed these 9 billion people in 2050. Well, firstly, if we want to feed 9 billion people, we need to, we need to be able to feed them on less land each. Yeah. And the quickest way to do that is to eat more plants because every time you give plants to an animal, the animal loses three-quarters of the protein and possibly more than that of the energy in that conversion. So that's the fa- this helps with your financial state as well because if you're buying a more expensive chicken, if somebody once said, well, if the chicken costs twice as much, we'll eat half as much. Mm. So in other, in other words, if, if, if we're eating good plant foods in, in place of those and increasing those, which is better for our health anyway, that's going to deal with the cost. It's going to deal with how we can feed more people per acre. Ideally, you do that with a really good healthy mixture of fruit, vegetables and nuts. Mm. I think all the nutritionists would agree. If you can increase those, and by definition, if you do that, you'll be eating less meat unless you're overeating, um, then you're going to be healthier. Some people are going to want to choose to go down the route of these really clever plant-based meats. Um, And we may... I'm waiting for this to become commercial before I say this is definitely going to happen, but the cell-based agriculture has also got to have great potential at enabling us to feed more people per acre without being cruel to an animal and without having to use antibiotics and all of those things. So those are the kinds of roots. So you're persuading people to eat less but better. Um, And so not every day or not every meal has to have meat in it. Um, or animal products and then when you do have it you make more of it Uh, and you buy your chicken you make sure you eat the whole chicken and don't leave bits of it so you can make several meals out of it so we we need to go down that kind of route um, and it's a healthier route but it's a choice some people will choose not to do that and that's the nature of a free society. Well, I- indeed, and thank goodness we're in a free society, but at, at the same time, I think humans are notorious. Uh, I once had a professor in a totally unrelated subject, but just basically said, I think it was in a marketing class, actually, who said, uh, um, you know, humans, we like to eat what's not things that aren't good for us. You know, we're not, so we can, we can I know I should be eating more a higher plant-based diet. A lot of people know that. But, you know, how do we... And I'm not talking about food taxes or anything like that. But how do we, you know, uh, how do you get, how do you persuade people to 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 change? I think you do so over a period of time. It helps if people know about the cruelties, but most people actually respond to feeling better about themselves Mm. for doing something better. Uh, And these things take time. I mean, I go back to the progress we've made with free range eggs in Britain when in the seventies. When I wanted to buy free-range eggs, I had to go to a health food shop. The mm. supermarket sold white eggs and brown eggs, and the brown eggs were more expensive, but they came from the same kind of battery cage. Um, and then one of the supermarkets, Sainsbury's, started to sell free-range eggs, and gradually 3% per year of the market switched. So now the majority of shell eggs sold in supermarkets, at all in some supermarkets, are cage-free at least, if not free range. And that's 
the kind of approach I think we need with more people. We need to stop the idea that we need to sell more and more meat because that's good for business. We need to start spreading the idea from governments and elsewhere and through school food and all of those things that we need a healthier diet. We need one that has moderate amounts of meat, that has good plant-based alternatives. And we need to keep developing these increasingly better um, meat. I, I, I tried one of those Beyond Meat sausages the other day and it brought back... (laughs) Memories of childhood, my meat-eating days as a small child. Uh, I didn't particularly like sausages, but you you know how um, nostalgia works to make you feel good about things you used not to like. It was a nice, it was a nice feeling. It was there, and people are getting cleverer and cleverer. As I said earlier, it'd be better to eat lentils, uh, and you can actually do great things with lentils. And people are um, really good cooking. Is we need to train more people to cook. We need to teach nutrition. We need to do all of these things. But it's gradual, it's, it's stage by stage, but it's everybody acting together and saying, well, actually, we need to change the direction we're going. Not to tell people what to do, let them work out that this is a better way. And I think that's a, a, that's a very good point. And I think maybe, uh, maybe the proof that we're seeing, it comes up at the end of that film, and you can do a little research as well, is that some of these... Um, these big corporate uh, producers, these poultry uh, companies and and others are buying stakes or or making investments in some of these alternatives. And I don't think it's an effort to then shut them up or shut them down. I think they see – it's about diversification. It's good business, actually. If this is potentially where things are going, then you need to start uh, diversifying and – they probably want to be get in on the action as well because if they're driven by no, nothing else, it's certainly a, a, a bottom line. Yes, they, they see themselves as protein producers and there's no longer this magic thing. It has to be animal protein. Protein is protein. Yeah. I mean, I think this also gets to... I've, I've mentioned this before, I think. Uh, I mean, I just think my own father, I mean, he's... Uh, hello, Dad. Uh, he's, uh, he's 90 years old and he tells me when he was growing up, they, you know... They had a chicken on a Sunday, and every other de- meal of the of the week was. It wasn't that they thought of themselves as vegetarians. This is pre, you know, he's 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 long before any hippies or any any alternative lifestyles. It's just the, the it was a lot of rice and beans and and that sort of thing. So um, we just some you know I guess it's probably from the 60s, 70s onwards. We got in the state where we almost got into this mindset that every meal had to have some sort of a, a, a meat based uh, protein to it. And I think uh, maybe we let um, Craig Watts, our uh, poultry farmer in eastern North Carolina, uh, have the last word when I think I'll, I'll paraphrase him when he says that um, every day we vote three times a day uh, with what we choose to eat. And I think that is something that we should should all remember, not just in terms of animal welfare, but uh, the sort of the planet we're leaving for our our uh, descendants, and also our own health. So, um, un- unfortunately, that's the end of our time, Phil. I'm being got uh, someone uh, telling me that we've got to wrap up. So I want to thank you for uh, coming onto the show. How best can people follow uh, Compassion World Farming? I mean, we'll have some links in the show notes, but what's the best way? Well, you can get onto our website. You can ask me to join our email lists um, and yes browse and look or call or if you don't like the internet ring in Okay. Uh, just to remind you that the film that we've uh, been 
more than just uh, served as a backdrop, which we've been discussing is Eating Animals, came out in 2018. Uh, another shout out to Chris Quinn, the director, and Simone Friedman. Uh, and also Matt Hurd at Dartmouth Pictures here in the UK, who has the distribution rights. Thank you for uh, providing us with the uh, high-res uh, film footage. And uh, then to, again, the great hospitality here at Spiritland uh, Studios. So, um uh, please, please remember to like us and share us with your friends and family wherever you happen to listen or watch podcasts. Uh, if you have any feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, if you have ideas for uh, topics, uh, guests to have on the show, or just want to uh, put questions forward that you'd like to have uh, asked and answered, do get in touch. And this is Factual America, signing off. You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Alamo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guest, and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Alamo Pictures to be the first to hear about new productions, festivals we're attending, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.